You know what's going to be better than uh, Paul McCartney doing a Super Bowl halftime show? It's seeing Eminem perform tonight. Check that. You know what would be better than Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers performing? Snoop Dogg spitting some rhymes. Surely, the Boss and E Street Band, The Who, the Rolling Stones, all former Super Bowl performers can't be better than Kendrick Lamar, Mary J. Blige, Dr. Dre, Eminem, and Snoop Dogg performing tonight. This is what you call a polemic. Something to get people riled up to make an argument. For you classic rock aficionados, that's a real dig to say that Snoop Dogg is better than Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. But maybe for some of you hip-hop audience people out there, maybe you're excited about the halftime show tonight. But you see, this polemic that I just made, that the performers tonight are better than classic rock musicians, is nothing to the way that Paul opens his salvo to us today. And he gets our attention very quickly. He uses one of the most heralded characters in this audience's history. Yes, greater than Mick Jagger. Moses. And he talks about a ministry that is greater than Moses' ministry. And who does he insert in to say that a ministry greater than Moses? His own ministry. The ministry of the gospel. And you've got to realize... Paul already has baggage that is coming with him. And he sets up this polemic by saying, what is greater than Moses' ministry? The ministry that I bring to you, the gospel. Talk about getting people's attention. Paul does it right off the bat in this passage. And this is what I think Paul is going to try to prove to us today. So if you're going to hear anything, here it is. This is the main idea. There is a glory greater than what we saw in Moses' day. It is one that comes with boldness, freedom, and transformation. But what makes it the most glorious is that it's been bestowed on us. There's a glory that's greater than what was in Moses' day. It comes with boldness and freedom and transformation. But what makes it the most glorious is that it's been bestowed on us. Let's look, shall we? 2 Corinthians chapter 3 Verses 7 through 18, it's printed in your worship guide. If you have an ESV, it's on page 1080. It's like this much through the Bible, if you really care, it's a, you know, you can find it. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
For there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what was once um, had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're just joining us. Welcome. We have been going through this letter, this letter of 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. And if you feel like you've just come into the middle of a sermon series or in the middle of this letter and you might be confused, there's good news for you. You're not alone. Because that's really how 2 Corinthians reads. You're feeling like you got dropped into the middle of some complicated relationship. And really, we are not just two letters in, we're four letters in. Into this church in Corinth, in Greece, or in the Roman Empire in modern day Greece, this church was planted by Paul. He spent a couple years with them, and it was not easy. They are surrounded by a culture around them that's antagonistic to the gospel and to even the Jewish faith. And he's gathered all these people together in a church. And since Paul has left, the church has stumbled. They've kind of gone away from the teachings. They have had some problems with sin in the church. It has been not good. Paul had to go visit them again in a painful visit. Three other letters were written. And this is where we get the fourth one, 2 Corinthians. Many have argued this is the most emotional epistle of Paul, 2 Corinthians. Because of the history he has with his church. And so far we've seen that Paul has revealed his own suffering, laid out his heart to them. He's talking about God being the God of all comfort. He says that love is saying the hard things. And he has talked very specifically about their need to forgive someone in the church. But things between Paul and the church are not just bad relationally. Also, there's a problem they have with Paul's message. They're saying it's not legit. Other teachers have come into Corinth. They don't suffer in the same way that Paul and his followers do, and other heralds, other apostles. So this church in Corinth wonders if this gospel message is really true. 
especially as these other super apostles, as we see they're called later in this letter, say that the Old Testament law should still be lived by. So how does Paul cut to the chase, cut right through it? How does he say that this gospel message is the true message? Especially when they're getting mixed messages from other people. Well, he does it by giving them an image for the Jewish Christians in this church in Corinth that would have been very, very familiar to them. And this is the image. It comes from Exodus chapter 34 in the Old Testament. It comes about Moses going to receive the law for the second time after the first one was broken because of the calf and coming down. Here he's back on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God written on stone tablets. Now Moses on Mount Sinai is in the presence of God, God being magnificent, holy, different. His glory, God's glory, shone on Moses and is reflected on to Moses. And this is what the image that is trying to be displayed by Paul in this passage and in Exodus. I think maybe the best way to explain it is if us Wisconsinites went down to Florida in the winter and the glory of the sun, yes, there is a sun, shone on us, and we came back to Wisconsin, and people said, what happened to you? Some might not even want to look at us because of the burns on our face. That is the idea of God's holiness shining upon Moses. And that is what the people saw when they saw Moses come off the mountain. And they realized they couldn't even look upon Moses because the holiness and glory of God was shining upon him. So I, that's the best way to explain that, that God's holiness, you could not even be in its, like, look upon it. Moses had to veil his face when he was with in the presence of God so people would not see how great this holiness of God, it brought them fear and separateness. They didn't want to even be around it. Since it's a Super Bowl, I might as well use Super Bowl analogies. It would be like this. It would be like someone saying, you should play offensive line for the Rams for a few plays. That would be craziness. These football players are set apart. They are different than us. They are bigger than us. They have trained their bodies. We would be in trouble even if we played one play on the offensive line today. It would bring us fear if the coach called your number and said you're in for this play. In the same way, that is the fear that they have. They are seeing Moses and the holiness of God. They can't even be around it because it is so different from who they are. That is an image for people that grew up in Jewish tradition. They have heard this story and they know it. It's very familiar to them. And here is what Paul is saying. Take that glory of God shining upon it. Take that law that was given to them. Take all of those glorious things. And the message that I give and the apostles give is greater. Greater. 
that would have caught those people off guard. How is it greater? And here, Paul makes his argument. The law condemns. This thing that Moses did is temporary. It was written on stone, not written on people's hearts. Paul is using an argument from the lesser to the greater. Yes, it was glorious what happened in the time of Moses, but there is something even greater. Even coming from me, one that suffers for this, there is a greater message that I bring. One, it brings life. See, the law that Moses brought shows that we cannot meet the standard. The good news that I bring is to show Christ has done it for you. So it does not condemn, does not bring death, it brings life. One. Two, this message is permanent. Moses is only temporary. The law only pointed to the one who would fulfill the law, the Messiah to come. The message we bring is eternal. It is permanent. The message that Moses brought was only temporary, a fading glory. Third, this message isn't simply written on stone. No, it is written on people's hearts. It's relational. There is a person that directs you into living this life. The glory that is given in the message of the gospel is greater than what was seen on the face of Moses. Maybe that gets you pumped. Maybe just hearing that, you're like, yes, tell me the goodness of this glory. Somehow I think maybe that message not play as well. Maybe I'll use an analogy for you again. Football again. It's Super Bowl Sunday. How much greater will next season be for us as Green Bay Packer fans with a new special teams coordinator? Right? We will have the glory of the Super Bowl. Still, somehow, I think that might not convince you. The polemic that Paul's message brings that God's glory of the gospel is greater than the shining off of Moses' face might not grab us as hearers in this age as it might grab the people that are part of the church in Corinth in this age. So let me say something polemic to you this morning. The glory of the gospel ministry is greater than the glory of the Super Bowl. Do I need to repeat it? The glory of the gospel ministry is greater than any glory of any Super Bowl. Hearing of this glory on Sunday morning is better than sitting in a seat in SoFi Stadium today. It will not fade. It is permanent. Sometimes we forget that a hundred years ago, football was not the sport of America. A hundred years ago, the sport of America was what? Ooh, it was baseball. 
But guess what got more press than baseball? Boxing. Boxing was what everyone would turn out to and see. Those were the Super Bowls of the age. Can anyone tell me the boxing champion of 1922? Will anybody be able to say who the Super Bowl champion of 2022 is in 100 years? It's a fading thing. It is not permanent. Also, the glory of sport and the glory we ascribe to people is condemning. I think about Michaela Schiffering this week. A young woman who won multiple world championships for downhill skiing. Who in the Olympics has fallen twice. No medals. And what does she say about her life this week? I'm a failure. I just feel immense pain and dullness. For 12 years I've trained for this and nothing. The condemnation of this kind of glory. What kind of glory do we give? We give people things carved out of metal or gold. Versus something that is living and active, that is carved into our hearts, that is alive and permanent like the Spirit. Nine times in just these verses, Paul uses the word glory, 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 doxa, doxa, doxa. You know what? That same word glory might be used today as that trophy is lifted. Look at this team that has glory. And I hope you might see a greater image in that what Paul is saying in this polemic, there is a glory that is greater than that glory. That will not fade. That will not condemn you. That is alive and active in your hearts. someone told you of a glory like this that would never fade, would you believe it? Would you listen? Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Here is Paul in his suffering, that he has faced death, slashings. He has faced no place to lie his head, all of this suffering he has faced, but he says, this message gives me hope. And with this, I can proclaim it, in the Greek word, with openness. This is interpreted in the ESV, boldness. Will you listen to this bold proclamation? Or will your hearts be veiled? And that's really the next word that takes the next portion, verses 12 through 17. A half dozen times this word veiled is used. And now Paul uses the image of not just Moses' face being veiled because it was hiding the glory of God, but even back then people were hardened and the veil was upon them. 
because they were not able to see and look at the glory that would come from the law to the Messiah through the law to the Messiah, that they were hardened even back in the time of Moses. And then Paul sees that even the veil is upon people at this time and is over their hearts. That when they hear the old covenant or they hear the law, it is veiled upon them that they cannot see the glory of God. And then he makes the argument that Christ lifts the veil. Let's think about this a little bit. If Moses radiated the glory of God by just being in the presence of God, how much more does Jesus show the glory of God? And now he's saying that we are actually, that veil has been lifted by Christ. So how can it that people couldn't look at Moses, but now they're able to look at Christ? This is a good question. And how does Christ take off the veil? Okay, this is going to take a little bit of thinking, but please bear with me. In Jesus, we can see the glory of God because Jesus is our mediator taking our sin so we can gaze at the holiness and goodness of a great God because Jesus mediates us, mediates that between us and the Lord. He takes our sin and gives his righteousness to us so that we can be in the presence of a glorious and holy God. That because of Christ... The veil can be lifted that we can look upon and be in the presence of an amazing God. And it doesn't end there. That the Spirit is then given to us. Not laws, in, not laws written in stone, but instead the Spirit is given to us in our hearts that we can live in freedom to live to the holiness that God calls us to. It's not simply by duty, but it's said something in us and united with Christ through the Spirit to then live into the calling that God has called upon us in holiness. But it does beg a question. How would we know if our hearts are veiled from seeing the glory of God? How would you know that? A challenge to some of us this morning. Are our hearts veiled from seeing the glory of God? Here's a question that I hear from my neighbors and my friends. Maybe it comes from you. I don't know if I want to take this Christian thing seriously. That might mean I had to start changing my life. See, this very thinking is looking at a veiled glory of the gospel. It sees Christianity as a message of condemnation, of death, 
of letters carved in stone. Rather than seeing that with Christ, that veil can be lifted, and only through Christ can we actually do the things that God has called us to. And then when we have Christ, we can actually live in true freedom and live the way that we were called to live on this earth. Let me explain it through an analogy, shall I? You know Wisconsin mornings and how much energy you have to scrape the windows, right? Your car window in the morning. I will admit, sometimes I'm lazy of doing that. It's not that bad. That much frozen stuff on my car windshield is not that bad. I can drive with it, right? Right? And it's usually because I'm in a, in a wooded area. I have lots of trees around my house, right? It's not really wooded, just lots of trees. So, um, and then I'm driving off, and it's fine. And then what happens? You hit the sun, right? Have you been there? When the sun hits that windshield, when you got frost on the windshield, you can't see a dang thing. And then you have to pull off and then scrape it anyway, right? <laughs> this is trying to do the Christian life without Christ. And it makes sense when the message of God, when his holiness shines, we can't see a dang thing. We just think about all the things that we have to do. There's no way I can complete this. There's no way I can make it happen. Christ removes the veil. He removes the frost so that when the Son of God shines, we can see. It doesn't blind us. shared this before, I'll share it again. I interviewed to work at a Christian camp as a counselor. And this Christian camp in the interview process had one word. And I had to write one word where I thought about these one words. Okay, a list of all these words. And some of the words were, you know, like premarital sex or drunkenness or smoking. Right? All these things. And Next to smoking, I put peace. Next to premarital sex, I put love. Next to drunkenness, I put joy. I had this very large African-American man that interviewed me. And he looked at me when he saw this and what I had put. He said, son, what are you doing? I said, sir, the Spirit gives us freedom. You know what is better than smoking? And why my friends smoke is because they want peace. The Spirit gives peace. You know why people engage in premarital sex? They just want to feel loved. The Spirit gives love. I come from Wisconsin where many of us struggle with drinking. And the Spirit solves that. It gives joy. You see, for some, it's frost on the windshield. 
When you say give up those things and the glory of God shines. But the thing is, when the glory of God takes that away, when the veil has been lifted, you can feel the glory of God to know he has given me joy and peace and patience and love and kindness and gentleness. Something of that glory that can make me face this world with something good. That is what I'm talking about. You know what makes me so bad about Christianity in the valley? That many people are walking around with veils on their face. The weight of a false glory. Versus knowing that there is good news through the gospel of Jesus Christ that it can be lifted, that Christianity should make us live in glory, in freedom. Not with a weight tied around our neck. The best part of this passage is the very end. He sums it all up in verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Sometimes when I'm reading all these theological things that are being said, I remove myself from the relational dynamic that is happening when Paul is writing this letter to real people. And Paul seems to do this time and time again in this letter to the Corinthians. He talks about what God has done in history. How it has come to the apostles and they bear this message of the good news. But then at the end of each of these sections, he doesn't just talk about something in the past or something that's happening just with the apostles, but then he includes the Corinthians and the people he's writing to. Again, let's remember, he's including a group that sinned against him, that speaks ill of him, that doubted him, that even wonder if what he's saying is from God. But then he says, and we all, with unveiled face. Paul saying, I'm not above you. Together we're beholding the glory of God. Here's the thing about having this unveiled face. That we can be able to participate in the glory of God. That the beholding is actually union with Christ. And when we're united with that glory, we are transformed, sanctified, molded into his image from one degree to another. How did Paul bear with these people? He bore with them because he realized that he too is being transformed just like them, through the perfect work of God, through the Spirit. He has patience with these people because he sees that they're being transformed into glory, to the likeness of God. It is happening. 
It has happened in the sense of justification that they have been transformed and holy, and then sanctification that it is progressing. See, Paul admits there are no ordinary people. I've been reading The Weight of Glory, a book by C.S. Lewis, really good, especially on a lot of these topics that come from um, this letter, Corinthians. And in The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis talks about how there are no ordinary people if you believe in the resurrection and the transformation that we receive in union with Christ. C.S. Lewis, this Christian author, says this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting people you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That is the glory that we receive. That none of us are ordinary, that we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. That one day, all of this will be stripped away and we will have a new life. A new body, a resurrected body. And then the glory will shine, fully. I'm going to close with this, and you might find it weird. And it's a little bit of a polemic, if you will. The greatest halftime show was Super Bowl number 41. Don't judge me. It was Prince. It was in Miami. It was raining. The stage was slippery, and people called Prince before and said, are you sure you want to do this? And Prince said, can you make it rain more? He had these crazy high heel shoes. He had four guitar changes. And he was rocking. Rocking on this guitar, doing his dance moves. Just living it up. It was glorious. And then he ended with purple rain. As it's raining and there's purple lights, you can see the lights had changed the, the rain to look purple as it's falling. He has this band come out and they're playing. This gigantic white tarp gets blown up so you can see the, the glory of Prince on this huge tarp as he's rocking on this guitar, and everyone can see him rocking on this white tarp, his image. And then he sings, you know, the famous lines, I'm not going to try it from Purple Rain. You know, and he says, let's hear it. And it was, it's, it's, if you guys watch this, it's just glorious. 100,000 people 100 million or whoever, how many watched the Super Bowl watching this as they're all singing and rejoicing together. Oh, 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 
much greater is the glory of God. You might laugh at Prince in that glory, but you know what? That was made by the Lord. That is his goodness to us in his common grace. How much greater will the chorus of angels be? And his glory wasn't on a stage in halftime show. No, it was on Calvary where he died upon the cross and he suffered. And his image was not blown up on some white tarp. No, his glory instead was radiated on us so that the world would see the glory of God through his church. Amazing. Think about that today. As you see trophies lifted, as you see fireworks going off, as you see Eminem doing amazing things with lyrics, think about how much greater is the glory of God.